0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to see you all here today. And for those of you joining us online, we thank God for blessing us with the technology that allows you guys to be here as well. For the past couple of months here at Unionville Alliance Church, we've been going through a series on the different parables of Jesus. We've been exploring the words of wisdom that our Lord spoke to the people who had the privilege of interacting with him during his time here on Earth. And today, I've been blessed with the privilege of finishing the series with a parable that deeply resonates with my own life. And I'll tell you guys a bit more about that later on. Whenever I read the Bible, it never ceases to amaze me just how mysteriously alive the Word of God really is. Take, for instance, the parable that we'll be looking at today. It's a parable that is very well known in both the Christian and the secular communities. But what's interesting is it's not merely well known because... It's essentially come alive quite literally in many regions of the world where there are laws that are named after it and these laws exist essentially to protect people who have the goodwill of going out and helping others who are in distress but to ensure that they're not sued for wrongdoing after the fact and it almost seems natural right that laws of this nature need to exist for us to be willing to go out and help people And isn't that just a sad reminder of the brokenness in our fallen world? Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We thank you for bringing us here this morning so that we can dive deeper into your word, Lord. And I pray that uh, as I speak this morning that your spirit flows through me. And that you open the ears of everyone who is here so that... They can hear the message you want them to hear, Lord, and I pray that you give me wisdom and that you um, steady my nerves and that you really let us feel your presence during this time. In the Son, Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as Pastor Daniel mentioned earlier, today we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. But before we begin, I want to first paint a picture of where exactly Jesus is up to this point in his ministry and what he's been doing. So in Luke chapter 4, we see that after being tempted by the devil for 40 days, Jesus returns to Galilee where he begins his ministry. And in Luke 4.14, it says that he is filled with the Holy Spirit's power. He begins to travel beyond Galilee and if we closely observe the things that he's doing in his ministry, a theme begins to form. In Luke 4:43, Jesus tells the people that he must move on because he must preach the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too because that's why he was sent. But everywhere Jesus goes, aside from fulfilling his calling of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, he's also healing people, he's casting out demons, he's even bringing people back from the dead. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus travels to the village of Nain, and in verses 12 to 15, it says, a funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man He said, I tell you, get up. And the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And so piecing together the ministry of Jesus, a pattern emerges which shows a compassionate man preaching the kingdom of God who also has the power to remove the pain, the suffering, and the hurt from people's lives. And what's more is he's willingly to freely use this power and it quickly becomes no wonder right that Jesus was able to gather massive crowds where in some instances he's speaking in front of crowds of oops, in front of crowds of thousands of people now can we just take a moment here and briefly pause and reflect on the majestic nature of anyone accomplishing something like this back in those days i mean jesus wasn't a social media influencer He didn't go viral overnight gathering likes and followers online and people just sat there and clicked and clicked and kept watching his views or watching his posts. Absolutely not, right? There was obviously no internet. There weren't even major forms of transportation aside from horses and donkeys. There weren't perfectly paved roads. The people who wanted to see and hear Jesus teach had to physically uproot themselves from wherever they lived from whatever they were doing, and they had to travel literally by their own feet, following this big and probably not very fresh-smelling crowd, <laughs> right? And they all did this because they heard of this guy who was preaching the kingdom of God in such a new and unique way, a way that was filled with compassion. And so it kind of continues like this, this huge deal of people gathering together up to the point where we reach the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, because Jesus is ministry, it's gaining traction, he's gaining status, the religious leaders of the day started to take an interest. They started to, be, to become fixated on the things that Jesus was teaching. And so this parable essentially comes to fruition because a religious leader of sorts, who's in the crowd that day when Jesus is speaking, decides he's going to ask Jesus a question. In Luke chapter 10, we see a man referred to as an expert in religious law. And he stands up, and in verse 25, he tests Jesus, asking him, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a great question, right? I mean, it's a question that breaks the very confines of time, a question that applies to all people across all generations. But the word test that is used here in the original Greek is ekparazzo and this word means to put to the test or to tempt, which should immediately tell us a couple of things about what's actually happening. That one, this man was probably indeed extremely well-versed in the religious laws of the time, which in this context would be the Mosaic laws or the Torah, because he deemed himself worthy, deemed himself capable of challenging somebody else on this topic in public, especially someone who had such a massive following. And that too, this man was maybe trying to tempt or provoke Jesus into saying something that day. And given the context of how the religious leaders were reacting to the things that Jesus was doing, I think it's safe to assume that this man may not have had the best of intentions when he decided to ask Jesus this question. That he may have been trying to tempt him. That he may have been trying to Bring him down or set him up in front of the crowd. So, Jesus being Jesus, he sees this coming and he anticipates it. And in verse 26, he replies very simply, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Sort of throwing it back at this guy who decided he's going to challenge him. And it comes to no surprise in verse 27 that this man is able to draw from the Mosaic law or the Torah. He refers specifically to Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19.18. And he replies Jesus, saying, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sort of covering all the bases. Right? And hearing this, Jesus tells him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. And right now it seems very neat and tidy, right? Very beautiful little package. You know, the guy gives a very textbook answer, and in response, Jesus gives a very textbook affirmation. But the plot thickens, and here we get another clue as to the intentions that this man had when he initially challenged Jesus. Because here, up to this point of the conversation, he was winning, right? I mean, Jesus agreed with him. Jesus told him he answered correctly. Here, he could have said something like, well said, good teacher, or thank you, Jesus. You know, big smile on his face. Walked off and enjoyed the rest of his day. But instead, we see that he stays. In verse 29, we see that he stays because he wanted to justify himself. And the word justify here in the original Greek is "dikaio," or to declare righteous. Which essentially means that this man stayed because he wanted to declare himself righteous in front of the crowd and in front of Jesus. So he follows up with the question, and who is my neighbor? So now, having inadvertently set the stage, he gives Jesus the perfect opportunity to present this parable. Jesus tells the tale of an unfortunate traveler. In verse 30, he says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, for a bit of context, I just want to let you guys know that Jesus was an amazing storyteller, and that this specific narrative he's presenting is something that everyone in that crowd would have easily related to, because you see, it was a well-known fact during the time of Jesus that the stretch of road between Jericho and Jerusalem was notorious for being treacherous. It was well known to the point that it was often referred to as the way of blood because of all the blood that was shed by criminals, bandits, and cutthroats of what have you. So Jesus draws the crowd in. He's continuing the story. And so far, it's not looking great, right? I mean, there's this guy. He's basically naked. He's just been beaten to a pulp. It's not very pretty. There's probably blood everywhere. And then these two dudes come along. And they kind, of, they kind of glance around, right? They kind of check out the scene and it's not great. So they decide, oh, it's none of my business and then they take off. But ironically, they're not just regular dudes because in verse 31, sorry, yes, in verse 31, it says, by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. And then in verses 33 to 35 comes the kicker because it says, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, if his, bill, if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I am here. Now, let's consider the implications of, of what just happened in the narrative. All right, we have a man who is essentially dying on the side of the road, and then we have two men who we know, at least in those times, come from very highly respectable backgrounds. I mean, there's a priest and a temple assistant Arguably men who are more holy, and certainly men who would know something about the commandments that this expert in religious law just quoted to Jesus, right? They're men who we would expect to be living at a higher standard, and they're men who this expert in religious law would revere, would hold in high esteem, would perhaps even feel a close affiliation with. But oddly enough, they not only decide to leave this guy stranded, They make it a point to go over to the other side of the road and avoid him entirely. Then, of course, we're presented with the Samaritan. And notice how he's not just a Samaritan because he's a despised Samaritan. Now, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, and then 136 years later, when the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, All but the poorest and the lowest classes of the Jewish people were exiled from their land. As a result, the remaining Jewish people slowly started to intermarry with others that came into the region. And this is actually what spawned the Samaritan ethnic group. And throughout the years, eventually, their religious beliefs started to become influenced by those that they married. And as a result, This spawned a big or a great hatred from the Jewish people against the Samaritan people, with the more pious of the Jews actually going as far as crossing the Jordan River just so they could avoid going through Samaria because they considered the land and the people entirely unclean. And now, with that in mind, let's go back again and look at how the Samaritan reacts to the half-dead traveler. In verses 33 to 35, Jesus tells us, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So the Samaritan goes over, right? He goes out of his way to check on the well-being of this wounded stranger. And immediately, he's subjecting himself to danger, right? Because for all he knew, he could have been walking into a trap. This man could have been bait set up by a crew of bandits. Thank God it's not. Right? And he continues, he starts to apply olive oil and wine and bandages the man's wounds, which is money out of his own pocket. And then he puts the man in his own donkey, exposing himself to even further danger because regardless of how slow a donkey may walk, this man's now walking by feet and he's leading his animal who's carrying this bleeding mess of a man. Ultimately, he's tiring himself out, he's moving at a slower pace, And he has willingly painted a massive target on his back, exposing himself to all the dangers in that road. And let's think about this even more because it's actually not just the material things or the physical things that he's given up. Since by now, he's either extremely late or he's decided to entirely abandon whatever plans he had that had him traveling in the first place. And when I was reading this part of the parable, I found myself sitting there and very quietly asking how many times I've driven by somebody on the highway who may have needed my assistance, who may have needed a little bit of love. Anyways, the Samaritan takes this man to an inn, he cares for him overnight, and then the next day pays two silver coins, also referred to as two denarii or two denarii, which is in those days, roughly the equivalent of two days' wages. And then, in perhaps the most baffling turn of events, he goes and tells the innkeeper to keep an open tab for whatever further charges that this man may incur. I mean, he didn't give a cap, he didn't give an estimate, right? If the innkeeper were so inclined, he could have charged him whatever he wanted to. But you see, this wasn't the concern of the Samaritan, because his only concerns were that this man was well taken care of, and that he, the Samaritan, would be the one who paid his debt. And right about now, this expert in religious law, he's standing there and he's thinking, huh, what just happened? And to be honest, when I read this, I was also left rather speechless because who would go to such drastic measures to see a stranger taken care of? Such drastic measures to pay their debt? It doesn't make sense, right? The narrative doesn't add up. Who would be so selfless to show so much love to someone they knew despised them. Because remember, the Jewish, the, the traveler was a Jewish man. He and the Samaritan were pitted against each other. They were enemies of sorts. And of course, at Sunday school as it sounds, we know that the answer to these who would questions is Jesus. But what does it all mean? right? Isn't that what we all ask ourselves after reading one of Jesus' parables? What does it all mean? How does it apply to us thousands of years after the words were spoken and more importantly what does jesus want us to take away from this parable today and i think there are two important practical things that we can take away which can help shape the way that we live our lives and those things are internalizing the holy spirit and his power and externalizing our faith internalizing the Holy Spirit and his power and externalizing our faith. Through the telling of this parable, at least at the surface level, Jesus paints a very vivid picture of the exact length we are to go if we are to meet his standards, of God's standards of loving our neighbors. And it all hinges on a single word that compels the Samaritan into action. And that word is found in verse 33 where it says, When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He felt compassion for him. Now scattered throughout the ministry of Jesus are numerous, numerous times when he expresses that he has compassion for the people. To name a few examples, we can look at Matthew 9.36 where it says, when he, he being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or in Matthew 20, 34, where it tells us Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Or again in Mark 1:41, where moved by compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And that's exactly the practical model that Jesus wants us to follow. I mean, at the end of telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, he instructs the religious or the expert in religious, religious law to go and do the same. Jesus wants us to put the needs of others before our own. He wants us to be moved by compassion when we see people who may be left fortunate, who may need our love. He wants us to be compelled like the Samaritan, into intentional action, willingly bearing the burdens of others as they were our own and loving people out of compassion. The compassion of our Lord Jesus led him to ultimately sacrifice his own life for us on the cross. To sacrifice his life for people who publicly attacked him, people who ridiculed him, who mocked him, people who chose to live against him then and choose to live against him today. And he did it for my salvation. He did it for your salvation. He did it for everybody's salvation. And he also did it to show us the lengths we are to go if we are to call ourselves his disciples. And I find myself constantly struggling with this because how can I, someone who is so sinful by nature, someone who gets upset when I get cut off in traffic, someone who only wants to win when I play games with my youth group, right? Who beams with pride when I see my son walking around because in that moment, I've temporarily forgotten that it was God who blessed me with such a beautiful child. How can I be kind enough? How can I love enough? How can I be compassionate enough to meet the standards and be worthy of the man that my Lord Jesus wants me to be? And the short and very sobering answer to these questions is, I can't. Left to my own devices, I simply cannot. Because you see, the model that was left by Jesus was only attainable by Jesus because he is God. So praise the Lord, because God's grace knows no bounds. And out of his grace, he gifted us with the Holy Spirit. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is very real. And if you so choose to ask him for help, he not only is willing, but he is more than capable of helping you. In John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, it says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will send you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because they do not recognize him and, is not, and are not looking for him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Only when we internalize the Holy Spirit and his power, weaving it into our very existence, and continuously surrender ourselves to the will of God, asking the Holy Spirit to empower us and to lead us and to guide us and be the one who steers the direction of the decisions we make in our lives? Are we able to live out Christ? Are we able to lean into the truth that God wants us to know? And are we able to externalize our faith, and become the disciples and witnesses that Jesus wants us to be, that he called us to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 8, filled with the Holy Spirit's power and witnessing to the ends of the earth. Jesus wants us to let him be in charge because he knows what's best for us. He wants us to act out of his will and through his power Because let's be real, none of us can do what the Samaritan did. All of us, well, at least those of you who can drive, pass by people every day who do need our help, who do need our love. Because we are all broken. We are selfish. We are not worthy. The only one who is worthy is Jesus. So praise God because he who is worthy went to die for us on the cross and has given us salvation. Praise God for gifting us with the Holy Spirit who now, if we choose to ask him, gives us the power to break the shackles of sin and conform to the image of Christ. Praise God for continuously forgiving us when we do fail to live up to his standards. And praise God for his never-ending compassion. Now at the beginning of today's sermon, I told you guys that I would share a little more about why this specific parable really resonates with my own life. So I want to tell you a story about my past and about a family that was split across continents. When I was about five years old, my father was sent here from Taiwan to do research at Toronto General Hospital. And the whole family came with him. We all wanted to check out this new and foreign country together. And once his research placement ended, because he and my mother noticed that this environment was so much better for raising kids, they decided that we would stay and that we would go through the process of immigration. They also decided that my father would go back to Taiwan on his own and that he would continue to work there so that he could provide for us financially while we lived and got our educations here. So because of these somewhat unique Circumstances. And I say somewhat here because I actually do know a lot of Asian families in that generation who did the same thing. But yes, because of these circumstances, I ended up living here, growing up here, but spending every summer back in Taiwan. And it was great. I loved and I still love flying and being in the airport. It's a little weird, I know. <laughs> I loved the change of scenery. You know, I loved making new memories of visiting new and exotic places, of beaches, of mountains, of night markets, of food and more food. It was always just filled with such amazing experiences, you know. But there was always one particular memory that stuck out to me, which actually eventually became something that I habitually would do. And I remember this so vividly because I would always be questioned by the people that I was with as to why I was doing it. And this specific memory is of my father, who would always insist on walking way ahead of the rest of us when we were out together, kind of like the tough Asian dad who had to carve the way and like, lead his pack. I don't, I don't really know why. But whenever he would come across somebody who was on the street asking for money, he would stop and he would give them some money. And then he would stand there and he would wait. And whenever I did catch up, he would hand me some money, and he would say, hey, you, you now go give them some money. And I always found it very curious, right? I, I mean, I understood why he wanted to help them. I, I could connect with that. He was just being a nice guy, right? But I didn't really get why he would wait there, wait for me to get there, and then give me money, and then ask me to go do it. Because at the end of the day, back in those times, it was all his money anyways, right? Didn't make sense. And so later on, I found out that my dad actually was doing this because of a certain belief that he had internalized, which resulted in his external actions being changed. And this was the Buddhist notion that if you did good deeds, kind of like in a video game, all right? You do do good deeds, and you get to collect good karma points almost. And then maybe, just maybe, if you collected enough, when you reincarnated into your next life, you'd be a little more blessed than the one that you currently are in. So suffice it to say, when I found out this reasoning, I quite literally leaped for joy because my dad was an awesome dude. You know, here he was, spending his money, trying to ensure that I didn't reincarnate into maybe a cockroach or or something. And if anyone likes cockroaches, I apologize. We can discuss it further after the service. Maybe we'll pray together. I, I don't know. So the years pass, and I'm finally a grown man, right? And oddly enough, I started doing the same thing. And I never really understood why, because for a long time in my life, I was a very non-religious person. And I ran with a very non-religious crowd. We didn't care about collecting good karma. We didn't care about doing good deeds. Reincarnation, what, what did that even mean, right? But it was just a habit, it was something that stuck. I did do the Jesus prayer when I was in grade five, because I was sent to a Christian school even though I was coming from a Buddhist background, which is a whole other story for another time. But the point is, I had long since put Jesus out of my mind. And to be totally honest, when I did that prayer, I had no idea what it meant. So, the years pass again, and one day, my dad calls me out of the blue. And unfortunately, by that time, my father and I had grown very, very distant, because one of the harsh realities of my growing up here, and his having to work in Taiwan, was that throughout my youth and young adult life, a massive rift would come between us. But one day, he called me, and I picked up, and he said to me, Hey, son, do you remember way back when you were a child, and you told me about this guy named Jesus. And I thought for a second, because I did vaguely have this recollection, you know? Like, I would always learn from it, learn about it in school, and I would go home, and I would just share with them. So I said, yeah, I remember, but what about it? And he paused for a little bit, and then he told me, well, I think you were right. You see, my father had somehow found Jesus. And because of the changes that we all saw in his life during that period of time, my mother and he both, by the grace of God, were saved. And ultimately, a big part of why I turned back to the Lord was because of these events that happened in my life. So right now, you're all sitting there thinking, Why did he tell us all of that? What did any of that have to do with his habits or his dad's weird habit, what have you? And I would say, for one thing, I now have something very, very legitimate to tell people when they ask me why I do things like that. I don't tell them that it's some odd habit I picked up from my father, because I tell them that I do it because it's what my Lord Jesus would do that I do it because I want to show compassion to people who sometimes just need some love. I, want to, I also do it because I want to be a good witness to the faith that I have in Jesus. And I do it because I've internalized the Holy Spirit and his power, which now has convicted me and further compels me into externalizing my faith. So, brothers and sisters, I want to now invite the worship team to come back and join us on stage. And as we go into a time of worship, we'll be singing the song The Jesus Way. I just want to invite all of you to reflect on a few questions. Do you constantly lean into the Holy Spirit? Do you constantly ask the Holy Spirit for help, for truth, for guidance? For wisdom and for power, so that you can live according to the will of God? Are you being the light of the world, being a city set on a hilltop that cannot be hidden?